Hi, this is Richie from the Metal Cell Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Alex CF um, on the show. Alex is many things. He's an artist, he's an illustrator, he's an author, he's a vocalist, he's a label owner, a museum creator, clothes designer. Anything else? Alex, uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think that's everything for now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the show, man. Thank Fair you. Bit. Welcome, Alex. Cheers. Delighted to have you. Thanks, and absolutely absolutely delighted. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> our co-host down below. Good to um, see everybody. Are, are you having a beer tonight, Howard? Are you... Um, I'm on the I'm on the wine tonight. Ooh, I've been nice. in, I'm bringing up the the intellectual class a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I've been feeling yeah. I'm out of my depth here, and I'm looking forward to it. Cheers, man. So I think man. About a few red wines will uh, will soften the palate. I have a pint of water, <laughs> so uh, I'm team tap water. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, um, we've more than welcome. We've plenty to talk about, and um, I mean, at the moment, how are you dealing with this? lockdown um have you seen any kind of anything to give you hope yeah i i think i'm i like a lot of people i think we're all suffering from kind of kind of ptsd after being told for over well over what, 18 months that that we could die and yeah. uh, and i think that uh you know it's it's brought out every aspect of kind of um human response uh be that you know the anti-vaxxers and the and the and the kind of like uh, anti-establishment that kind of that's come out of the right wing and um and also for people who suffer from anxiety and depression and things like that like how you know for so many people who were struggling with you know um being alone and and uh and you know a lot of things just doubled down and and for me i think like in the uk as i'm sure you're aware like in in england um things are opening up quite fast now like uh mm-hmm. and um i actually did an event on the weekend with my partner we did a, an art fair and i was very nervous about it all but they had quite strict kind of um uh you know policy you had to have a double jab and you had to have taken a covid test and all this kind of stuff so um but it, there was a, just definitely a feeling of like is this okay should i be here <laughs> like am i am i breathing in you know uh coronavirus but i think that yeah, just the general anxiety about things, quote unquote, returning to normal when they very much aren't. Yeah. Um, you know. What about creatively wise? Um, did it uh, make you double your output? I wrote a book. Any <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I, uh, I, t- I took it as a um, an opportunity to, it seems like a lot of people did because it's been sitting in a pile at my copy editors for about six months. A lot of people wrote books in the lockdown. So, um, so yeah, so I did that and I did a bunch of other shit, um, as I'm sure lots of people did. <laughs> and did you find Alex, did you find Alex with, um, with the lockdown that it shaped the writing of the book? I know it's a companion piece to, uh, the trope from which we sing, yeah. but, uh, this new book, uh, the Arata, um, so it's written as a companion piece, but did you find that the situation we all found ourselves in shaped the direction that that took? Would it have taken a different direction if it wasn't for the pandemic, for example? Um, well, the, the book I actually, because I wrote the Arata, the Arata came out just before, uh, well, all this in 2019. The, the book I wrote is the sequel to Seek Throne, for which we sing. So it's a novel, it's not illustrated, but it's, um, yeah, like very much so because it's uh, set in a post-apocalyptic world if you ah. like a post-civilization um where humans aren't you know it's actually mostly from the perspective of a human but it's which is very different from the first book but it's yeah it definitely dealt with the ideas of of 
of the new normal, if you like, or the new world, mm. or seeing things through a different set of eyes. So the protagonist, without giving too much away, has to relearn how to see the world through a different person's eyes or a different um, character's eyes and and unlearn the many things that we took for granted. So yeah, there's definitely a, an aspect of the of pandemics in general and, and our relationship with nature and, and animal agriculture and how, you know, that we the, the more we ignore the fact that we are an animal within an ecosystem the more we put ourselves at risk um mm. so yeah so yeah it did <laughs> <laughs> and is it still called wretched is the husk or have you it is yeah yeah it? yeah it's wretched okay, is the okay. husk yeah and how how are you going to release that have you got a book deal or oh god no no diy mm. um i'd love to have a publisher just because it would be really nice to have someone help me um yeah. <laughs> but uh i did have a literary agent but um ironically it's actually quite a good story um uh, ironically she after months she's a wonderful person um doesn't like fantasy and i was writing fantasy and then uh not that long after we kind of parted ways she had became the person who had to represent the, the estate of Richard Adams, who wrote Watership Down. So oh, uh, wow. she went from one uh, one animal fantasy to the animal fantasy. <laughs> yeah. and then, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, which is ironic because apparently uh, they brought up the when that the daughters of Richard Adams were kind of um, cleaning house Fall of Ephrafa came up in their interview and they were saying, well, what about this band that are like, uh, <laughs> are, you know, using the names and terminology? It's like, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. And like, and I never thought of it, you know, is it intellectual property? Like, is it, I guess you could, I mean, I'm sure there are laws are saying you can, you can pay homage to things, but yeah, I thought course. it was really funny that that came up in. It kind of feels more like a, a reimagining of the, of the story more than a, a blatant sort of, um, use of the material you know oh yeah i mean it's it's completely like like he's he was aware of it before he died um someone sent me a link that was like oh, great. twitter it, yeah twitter interview where someone said did you know that there's a band based on but there are a couple there are a couple of bands and people who wrote songs and stuff about about watership down i mean obviously it was a really important part of my my childhood um one of a, a bunch of books that my my mum introduced me to um so yeah so yeah he was so he I, he didn't seem at all offended he was like yeah it's cool it was a story i wrote and i'm glad people liked it so that's you know that's cool um and about your mom alex um was she a teacher had she just um, a fantastic taste in literature or? she did have a fact she does have a fantastic yeah she's um yeah she has uh she actually gave me recently she gave me a beautiful original copy of uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner with all the original plates and um, yeah, she introduced me to like uh, Tolkien. Um, she read The Hobbit and some of the Silmarillion to us when we were kids, uh, my sister mm -hmm. and I. Um, but yeah, we had this, there was a bookshelf outside my bedroom, which was just full of like classic literature, C.S. Lewis and all kinds of stuff. And, and yeah, like kind of introduced me to like classic fantasy. Um, but it actually was, wasn't until my stepmom, who was really into science fiction and fantasy, introduced me to science fiction and fantasy <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, and that kind of cemented my especially um brian froud who did all the design work on the dark crystal um he did this mm. book called the the world of the dark crystal which i actually have somewhere around here um and it was a kind of natural history of the world of the dark crystal the the thra mm. the, the planet it takes place on and i remember going every time i stayed with my parents with my dad and my stepmom i would read this book in the spare room and just obsess over it and be like this is I want to do this when I'm older and so 
when I did the errata, it was kind of like a homage to that. It was like, a, oh, you know, 30 odd years later, I actually fucking did it. So that was, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was cool. Um, what, what about your art style again? Was that through sketches when you were in your teens and just oh, like, yeah. are you trained? Did you go no, to no, art no. college or anything like that? I, I did, I did a, a BTEC national diploma. Uh, my art teacher didn't like what I did. Um, one of my teachers actually said once, um, when I was, uh, he was quite Christian and I was hanging up my end of year, uh, work and they were on these like temporary walls and I did these mm-hmm. awful kind of Giga inspired fucking hideous. I mean, they were fucking hideous paintings <laughs> and the fucking thing fell on me and he, with, without, a, 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 an ounce of humor, he turned and said, that's God telling you not to make this uh, art <laughs> so uh jesus christ I got, classic. A fucking, I got a fucking a so i'm like you know you know i i <laughs> I, I uh i enjoyed doing shitty giga so yeah so giga hr giga was a huge influence on me uh-huh. like every, every i'm watching other... the aliens trilogy with my son at the moment and we're loving it amazing mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. yeah like he was such a big influence on me and again my mom got me uh his book hrgiga.com um, when I was in my teen, like late teens, early twenties, and um, I actually got to go to his museum about eight years ago. Oh, in, in wow! Rio, oh, was, yeah. was uh, Tom G. Warrior there? <laughs> no, unfortunately. But there were loads of people wearing lederhosen. Um, it was like goth. It was like equal parts goth and lederhosen. It was it was absolutely bizarre. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, just I think like every other like person of my age around like the late 90s because I was born in 81 so late 90s art college um yeah just anything that was kind of against like well it's just every generation was the same weren't they if you're an artist you're a rebel you know um but it's interesting because I think a lot of people who go to art college who are you know who become classically trained like you know they will end up being the fine artists and then you have all the outsiders and I guess I'm one of those outsiders because you know I'm fucking terrible at promoting myself and and uh you know just kind of... I've been to art college myself Alex um I have a degree in art I was born the same year as yourself too in right. 1981 so it would have been around the same time but mm. I, I can definitely relate to that um the thing that art college did to me was it just ruined my love of it for a long time yeah. <laughs> I found that it was just like an indoctrination of methods and processes and any sort of instinct that you had to go down a certain route was blocked immediately. And as I come back to the classic, the way of thinking, come back to the to the institution's way of putting your art out there, I could never marry to it. Like, and yep. it um, it was it was tough. And I I don't think I learned much about what to do, but I learned a lot about what not to do. But that's the truth. Like, why, why would you ever need to try and make primary colours out of tertiary colours? Like, why, why, why would you, like, being told why that... Why is there a rule? <laughs> like, like, there's, like, the fact that my art teacher was like, your anatomy is all wrong. I'm like, it's deliberately not right. <laughs> and the best thing, the best thing was when I was doing my interview to go to, 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 a, to do my degree, and my art teacher said... You know, I was a street punk then. I was like bondage trousers, twenty hole Doctor Martins, mohawk. You know, discharge back jacket. <laughs> and um, and my and I said, how should I go to the interview? Should I like normalize myself? Like, <laughs> Do you no. tone yourself down? Yeah. And they was like, no, go as flamboyantly as you want. I think I wore fucking those butt flaps. You know, the flaps of material <laughs> yeah, that hang Jesus. down. That you put extra. I look like a like a. I don't know what I look like, but um. She took one look at me and was like, you are not coming to this university. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, 
So I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because, um, again, culturally, um, being like I'm born in 1971, so I got the tail end of punk more yeah. so. And um, so when you were going dressed as as that, like what bands were you listening at the time? Was uh, Peaceful Out? Was that your kind of holy bible, the peaceful? No, it's basically my, I was, um, so I got into skate punk when I was in my teen, teen, teenage years. My sister got into rock music before me um, mm -hmm. and uh, Nirvana and stuff like that. And then I got into like NoFX and, you know, ah. I had this, I had this actually like uh, this kind of um, turning point where I was getting bullied a lot at school and I ran away from the bullies and ran into the computer room and I met all the nerds who were playing lemmings on the computer and I, they were listening to, <laughs> lemmings. yep, <laughs> and listening to The Clash and Green Day and all that stuff and then, you know, I fell in with, um, with, with, with that whole movement and then I actually had a pen friend in Pittsburgh, um, <laughs> so this would have been around 19, so 1999. No, 1997, because I, I met her in 1998. Um, and she would send me mixtapes of like Pittsburgh punk bands like Als Rotten and Anti Flag and, or Anti Flag and um, uh, Global Threat, The Unseen, all these kind of bands. Like, and uh, I kind of, it was like this lovely introduction to a world that felt very remote from me, very like fantastical in a way. Like, that there was mm. this place where you know, punk was rich and alive and there were bands that I loved and I didn't really have that connection in the UK. And so I was lucky to make friends with people who were, you know, much more into a lot more of the classic punk. And then I got into Crass and Discharge and uh, Rudimentary Peni and um, I actually did my dissertation at art college on on um, Nick Blinko from Rudimentary Peni. And, and um, so I got into anarcho-punk and peace punk and stuff like that and then like more crusty stuff like the Varukas and uh like amoebics and stuff like that and then um a slight detour into ska punk <laughs> and then back to it, it was uh, gonna be inevitable <laughs> uh yeah one, one of my first bands was a ska punk band which was really fun because it was like just a kind of silly thing to like gain some confidence in in myself and um and I remember the first show we did where I was so nervous I came on stage with an American accent and uh, oh. and it was just, oh. Jesus Christ. And it, and it, <laughs> my partner reminded me that there's a scene in Friends where where uh, where um, Ross comes on to and he has an English accent and he has to kind of keep it going because he's so done <laughs> like Jesus Christ. Uh, so yeah, so I did that and then um, yeah, I, I think around like early 2000s I got into like um, Power Violence and eventually Emo Crust which is the music that kind of really mm -hmm. stuck with me and I some people call it neo-crust or You missed those days. I mean, I think the big thing about those days was it was pre-internet as we yes. all know. Yes. And um, the idea of a fantastical land in, in Pittsburgh and so on was real because you couldn't uh, um, connect to it on the internet. You just kind of got feedback from it. You listened to the music from there. You pictured in your head the fantasy of the place. Oh, God, and yes. I, I kind of lost that a little bit now, I think. It's very hard to find bands where they were it just opens up this avenue of you don't know a whole lot, you know? A hundred percent. And this is actually why I started, like, for me, like, I didn't ever want anything I did to be, like, I, I, I liked the anonymity of, of bands, like, you know, mm. you know, I would read Slug and Letter Zine or, or um, Maximum Rock and Roll and I'd see, I, I actually remember seeing the review for Remains of the Day, the first Remains of the Day record in 
Fractured magazine. It's funny, I've actually been trying to hunt down that copy of Fractured magazine. It was a, a UK's punk zine, newspaper's punk zine. Um, I bought a couple of copies on eBay just trying to find this one issue where it's like, you know, I think they called it crust in name only, this emo crust, like they were so mm. against it, but it was, to me, it was like this incredible melancholy, this, this, you know, idea of Portland and Oregon being this like rain. I remember reading in like a detestation record about, you know, it rains like 300 days a year and like, and I was mm. thinking these, all these crusties living in trees with dreadlocks and broken umbrellas and and i was just like and i and that was literally what the um what's his name the uh it's the, the he did the husher i think it is or hush he does hush i think he does these beautiful illustrations at the top of slug and letters scene um pictures of crusties living in trees with um, broken umbrellas and i was like this is how, how i imagine them and i yeah i just i that was that was it you know putting you know putting euros into a envelope and sending it off into ether to like eastern europe europe or somewhere and then getting like you know i remember getting a tragedy hoodie in a tiny little box he'd managed it was insane society records he tried to he managed to get it in this tiny little box a tragedy hoodie with the the tragedy uh the pile of tires but uh, car tires and i was just i was just like this is amazing and just falling in love with the kind of again as he said like the fantasy of it all this like mm. remoteness of it like and there was the great filter of like if Ebullition Records or something would carry your record or if Havoc Records would put your record out. Like that was the great filter of like, you know, especially towards like the early, like the early 2000s, late 90s, you got like His Hero Is Gone and you mm. know, all those bands that were like uh, kind of coming out of that scene and reinvigorating punk and hardcore. Mm. And, and they were there wasn't we're so oversaturated with everything now there's there's no mm. you know you can listen to like everything and i think people have become so um flippant and and dismissive of music they won't you know i've i've read reviews of our records that have appeared on those record review sites before it's possible for them to have listened to the whole record because they're yeah. like, so fucking long and i think that's that thing is like that's this need for content over experience and I, yeah, yeah over substance yeah and to see because like you said there's so much lost in this and when people are putting up reviews of your stuff before you even had a chance to get people to listen to it or even listen to it themselves and um, that's that's a sad indication of the way things are going with music in, in that sense that there's a sort of a, a facade in front of it so you have to break through to actually get to the content and yeah. uh, um, the only good thing that's coming out of it I think is you, you were, I find myself more listening to the, what the music is rather than what people are saying about it and that, that's the one positive thing I have found about it is that you do have to actually listen to things now to get an opinion rather than, you know, take a five second clip off Instagram and decide upon that, yeah. I, you know. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> as well as that, you know, the style of writing, the journalism back in the day was absolutely fantastic as well. Because yes. you wouldn't mm -hmm. you wouldn't have necessarily the means to listen to the album. But if you had a favorite two or three journalists, you could trust them and yeah, read what they have to say exactly. and buy on the strength of it, you know. And you'd go yeah, for we, you'd, still, you'd, we still have that today, I think, a little bit, but just not as much, not as not as refined, mm. I don't think. Yeah, but everyone's I guess now it's like anyone can be a journalist and there isn't necessarily mm. a you know, you I I reading Maximum Rock Roll or any of those zines of that of that ilk where you'd have different, you know, writers would have their columns or they'd have their review sections and you know, yeah. you would you would I mean I would would scan through the back of zines and just look for the capitalized band names to see if I'm gonna read the review. So, you know, 
for me and like you know early 2000s it was tragedy and remains of the day anything that sounded like those bands because that was like the thing when the first tragedy record came out and everyone was like oh my fucking god this is incredible because you know a lot of people were very dismissive of of his hero you know his hero's gone reforming doing longer form songs whether it would be as good as this you know you know formative band but um but yeah i think that was and i think when i did when we started doing morrow i wanted to kind of recapture that feeling of like discovering something that you could that people put some work into and and not you know i wanted to i actually wanted to make it not as easy to get hold of but you know obviously a band is a shared experience so it's and you can't you can't it's this this the nature of the world you can't take the clocks back can you you can't reset oh, things you can't get you rid of the internet <laughs> you gotta move it really haven't you you know yeah. as terrifying it is but it's interesting that when you, you i know that you're a real aficionado of flora and fauna and nature and things like that um how do you feel about the way things are going for the future of the human race in terms of ai and uh, kind of moving away from this kind of nature-based thinking do you I, feel? Do you feel? I, I've read an interview with you previously where you seemed very pessimistic about how things were going for us, and that was maybe ten years ago. I'm just wondering, has your opinion changed that time, or has it developed? Yeah, I think it has. I think I I have a more of a um, idea of how you know. So I'm not anti-technology, but I I'm I am very cautious of how we use technology, and I think that there's obviously a, a lot of people far far more intelligent than me that could talk about this stuff. But I think it's just a case of like you know, we have the means to fundamentally change the way that we have our relationship with nature and, and make it more um, symbiotic. But it's because it's so counterintuitive in a capitalist society, it's not possible. And I think there are, you know, I have friends who are anarchists and, uh, and you know, very much, you know, want to replace this system with, with one without, you know, central power systems and, and can, you know um governments government in, in the state that they are now but i think that there's there's always going to be collateral and and it's always going to be lives and um i think that utopias aren't possible i think i mean i'm terrified and i'm like everybody else who's who's kind of you know aware of the effects of climate change like i am a very anxious person so you know i i remember getting becoming upset when it was you know warm in you know, uh, October and, and, you know, this was 10, 15 years ago and thinking this isn't normal, you know, where are the seasons gone now? You know, it's just, it's just gone. You know, we've seasons have disappeared and, and, and it's, it's, it, it's unfortunate that the people who are in control are those who are either denial in denial of it or just don't care. Um, but it's, I, I'm hopeful because I have a niece and nephew and I want them to live a long and happy life and I don't want them to suffer. And I'm, I have to be hopeful. I have to be hopeful that, that that generation, and it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of the kids are, you know, far more open-minded and far more accepting of, of not just, you know, the concept of of climate change and, and, and empirical evidence, and um, but also their attitude towards, um, you know, LGBTQA and, and um, you know, it's just, they just don't have the prejudices and it's the parents who are so, I don't know what to do with this information. Like, you know, I've got <laughs> yeah. plenty of friends who've got kids who've turned around and said like they're, you know, trans or queer or, you know, they want to be, you know, they have their, their chosen pronouns and, and these kids are like 12, 13. And it's, you know, even if it's just part of their growing 
you know, growing up, they're still aware of it and they're still taking it into consideration and they're not judging each other on it. And it's, that's amazing. Of course, there's always going to be awful bullies and, you know, all the things that happen and then kids who grow up with very controlling conservative parents and all Mm -hmm. this stuff. But there is a lot of hope there. And I, I just hope it's fast enough for those kids to have to you know to 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 um act out their hope their own kind of hope for the future but i i don't know i, I see what you mean i mean i i went back to to school uh, as a sna special needs assistant about right. five years ago and um i was just blown away by the difference between when i went to school yeah. and the way it is now it's just it's it's not even com- you couldn't even compare it it's just it's crazy you know the world is moving and yeah. uh, it's moving really really fast and a lot of it is for the good i mean i see a lot of bad too but I find that most of the bad stuff you see in the world at the moment are people of our generation and above. Yeah, yeah. I do feel that this new sweep of, of um, kids and young adults coming through are just far more aware of the world. They're far more tuned in. Um, they have a simpler look at things, I think, in a, such a complicated world. To me, it's just so complicated. I, I've no you know, rhyme or reason to, to try to figure anything out. I just go with the flow and try not to offend anybody. But I do see with kids, they can simplify it so easily. It's like, why would you be annoyed at that? Or exactly, exactly. Right. Know, they just don't care. Like, <laughs> and it's a yes or no. And like, oh yeah, mm. why, why am I? I don't give a fuck, you know. <laughs> Again, like I have a thirteen-year-old, and his um, knowledge is fantastic. But also, he still loves the magical side of things, the fantasy side of things. You know, the mm. Harry Potter's, all the Star Wars and stuff. And it just brings me on nicely to the Merlin Cryptid collection. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? That was, a, this... that was an amazing segue, by the way. <laughs> I do it the whole time. I do it the whole time. Smooth, <laughs> uh, Richie. The, the Maryland Cryptic Collection. Um, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's almost a sore spot, to be honest. Um, uh, uh, don't say that. It, it, well, it's uh, you know, I spent thirteen years of my life working on it, uh, mm. and and some of it at uh, the tail end of kind of getting over my illness and um it was a you know it was it was a wonderful experience in escapism and and uh, a love of like turn of the century science fiction you know hg mm-hmm. wells and um Edgar rice burroughs and hp lovecraft and blah 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 and all those those people and um you know it i wanted it to be something that was was kind of just pure escapism but through the lens of darwinian biology if all of these things existed how would they fit into the world like how would we classify them what would they be and you know take any kind of mythological creature and give it a kind of a a a grounding in reality its relationship to other species and 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 it was for a for a long time it was a it was just a way of making a living i would i would um I would curate the collection and sell some of the pieces and um and kind of continue to add to the um encyclopedia of the of the Maryland collection and the mythology around him and his work um but it, I think it unfortunately towards the end coincided with the rise in this kind of concept of the personal truth or um you know alternative facts and it kind of um became something very different and suddenly it went from people who were recognizing the kind of references to fiction and stuff and being excited you know about that to people thinking it was all real Mm. um and then i started getting these emails from people saying that they were 
staking a claim that it was their family inheritance or that what? they were going to burn down my museum or they were going to um more recently someone said they were going to write a discrediting biography about thomas Marilyn if i didn't share all information pertaining to the Marilyn collection and i was like you can't write about a cop well, not a copywriter but you can't write about somebody else's work and they're like then they were offended because they realized that they thought it was real and Thomas Marilyn was real uh, and that I was withholding information so I've been accused of being part of the Illuminati and <laughs> you know that I should be sharing this information with the world and I just it made me really unhappy it was really 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 oh depressing. man that's terrible you know and it went you know it's it, the, the 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 good thing that happened was uh, maybe four four years ago now uh, a museum in Copenhagen got in touch with me a lovely guy called Leaf um, who was uh, curator of a actual museum um, and he commissioned me to make uh, like 15 or 20 specimens for his museum uh, the museum yes. Holland Foster and that's now a there permanent collection where you know it's the seven foot werewolf taxidermied werewolf and various wow. <laughs> you know bits and pieces I've never been there um, I never will because I'm too much of a control freak and I'll just be like ah this isn't right you need to move this and do this and then you know um, but uh, I think that that was like a nice kind of like you know and I, I you know I, some weird things happened like I had a, a I had a Skype meeting with uh, the head of uh, Skydance Entertainment for Paramount about turning it into the Harry Potter for adults and you know I had a you know I had a film deal uh, we even had a director, um, Brad something or other, who was the director of... He did the second unit director on Planet of the Apes, the most recent Planet of the Apes. Um, and he was attached to, to turn it into a film. And then he just kind of sat on it for a year and stopped talking to us. And then that was that. Oh, <laughs> just, and then, to be honest, like I think like for, as far as that goes, I... I want people to enjoy it for what it is. And, yes. you know, just to be a kind of like, oh, I love these things as much as this dude who made this crap, like, I just enjoy it for the kind of like mm. mythology again, like the world building, the idea of like, the, like Brian Froud did with the Dark Crystal, like creating the natural history of the world behind a film mm. that people were scared of in the eighties, you know, like he went all the way into like the ecology of it and the, you know, the living essence of the planet. And then I kind of wanted to do that over and over again with the bands I've been involved in and with, with um, my my novels now, but and with the Marilyn collection, and and I wrote a book of about the Marilyn and of collection, and it's a all of Marilyn's diaries, and I just got to the point was just like I don't think the world needs this right now, and uh, so I just kind of I've just put it on the back burner. The only thing that's annoying Brilliant. is I have to pay for the I have to pay for the website to the domain for the website every year. It's like a hundred and fifty dollars, and I usually don't have any money in my account, so it's just sitting there in the background, like just <laughs> taking money from me. Like uh, that's the only thing that really happens with the Maryland collection now, is I have to pay for the the hosting of the site. But <laughs> I, I thought it was incredible. Um, Thank you. Jaw dropping, incredible. Cheers. Um, Myself, my son, and my wife were looking at it but that's uh, yesterday. What, that's for you. It's for you. The whole thing's for you. That's what I always exactly. said to people who emailed me and said, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for doing it. I'm like, yeah, this is for you. Like, I, you understand what it's for. And, and, you know, I don't have any, I had never had any delusions of it being any more than just like a, of, of that. And also like, you know, I used to be a comic artist and 
I made no money from being a comic artist. I think when I got to the point where I could make a living, it was I got a, a distribution deal with Diamond in America, and I realised that I would make something like eight pence per comic, and I just couldn't afford to pay my rent. I'd just come off this disability benefit for being ill for like eight years, and I was like, I can't do this. And then I just started making things because it was fun, and then I realised that I could sell these things and, and live off myself which was with wonders for my self-esteem as someone who wanted to do so much but physically couldn't um and it became a way of doing that and and it was awesome for for a while and then it just became something else but then that's the nature of again we're talking about music and putting stuff into the world is that the moment you create something and put it into the world it's no longer yours it's yes. owned yeah. by other people yeah. and you know mm. just as much as those bands or films or books that we've all read that profoundly changed us you know, yeah. you're lucky if you can profoundly change anyone, you know, but if you can make something that people kind of understand and appreciate or are inspired by or whatever, that's fucking amazing. That's the whole point of it is just like to be able to have that moment with someone and say, oh, yeah, I totally get why you did that. That's so cool. I'm really glad you did that. That's really nice. And that's enough. You know, that's all you really hope for. Um, and I think that the moment it becomes distorted is the moment you kind of have to let go of it and just be like, yeah, that. Let's do something else. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's what I did. But, yeah. And, um, Alex, you said there that you were sick for a while. Like, years, is it? Yeah, what yeah. I was, um, so I was diagnosed with ME. Uh, 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 Myalgic encephalomyelitis, I think that's how you say it. But um, So I was very ill. So I went to New York in 1998 to meet my pen friend. I was actually, it was a school trip, a uh, college trip. Um, I went to New York and got very, very sick on the flight. And for the first day in New York, I was just completely out, f massive fever, couldn't do anything. Next day, felt absolutely fine. And, you know, had a great time in New York and uh, went, you know, came home and then just started feeling rough and a lot of pain in like in my, in my um, joints and under my arms and my groin and, and just feeling awful. and didn't really have any way of really understanding it. I went to a doctor and they, they said like, sounds like you had a glandular fever. And um, they took a blood test and they said there was evidence that I'd, I'd had a, a, a fever or virus. Um, and then it just got worse and worse and worse. And I was working as a graphic designer. I got a job as a graphic designer working with this awesome dude who was a rockabilly guy. And he introduced me to like, you know, Photoshop and all this kind of stuff. and um, and I just was getting more and more sick and missing more and more days of work. And there was a point where the company was going to merge with another company. And I sat down with the accountant because they had to make me redundant and then re-sign me on. And he sat there with his pen and he said, my daughter's just been diagnosed with ME and I don't think you'll, you should sign this contract because you'll be unable to fulfill your role. And I was like, it was quite a f powerful moment. Um, but I was diagnosed like 1999 2000 and then I was kind of ill until 2007 um so I would basically like be bedridden three days a week um and just like a general I think they it's 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 more like the pain I was in a pain a lot I was on a lot of like which is the fibromyalgia side of it the, the kind of um pain and just fatigue not like yawny tired it was like just drained all the time and everything was really hard and um so I would draw and I drew 
comics and I drew about my condition. I drew like a kind of like allegory of my, of Emmy. It was like a horror, zombie horror um, comic book. And I, um, incidentally about a zombie rabbit <laughs> so rabbits have always been like a, a theme um being a... we were talking um before we came on here and um i was saying how much i'd want and and his work and so on and i really do and alex quite humbly said that he's no one to be admired but um it's something that's close to my own heart um alex is the the chronic fatigue and things like that i have people in my life my significant other has Bechet's disease very similar to emmy right yeah and i just find that the the endeavor that it takes to get things done and to get things done as well in your lifetime in your career be it music books uh, illustrations whatever it has been um it's just it's it's amazing and people don't realize what chronic fatigue actually means for a person it means you don't really get to decide what you do that day it's, yeah. it's not up to you and it can be you look fine you see and that's people the, just yeah. interpret that you're that's that's the that's the really fucked up thing is because people will say to you, you look great and you're like yeah but I'm not doing great I'm not able to fulfil my week here yeah. so I do admire that Alex and, and I think it's worthy of admiration because it's fantastic body work that you have and to, to do it in the circumstances that you're in is is quite remarkable in any context and you should be proud of it. Well, I I think it's I, I appreciate I I, th- I think it's um I think a lot of it is it comes back to like how how we feel about ourselves um especially in relation to our parents which we talked about before this um and the idea of like work ethic and Mm. you know something that my i remember a really poignant moment in my life when i would you know my my father and i hadn't been talking for a while because i had to quit my job as a graphic designer and and i think he took that quite hard and and you know he didn't have a particularly he didn't have a knowledge of of me or fibromyalgia and we didn't speak for a long time after that and i remember i went to a comic convention in birmingham or somewhere and my sister was living up north that, that way at the time and i <clears throat> went to see her and i had all of my comics out on the table i'd done like a little you know i'd done a stall and whatever and and she'd invited my dad over and which i you know at the time i didn't really want to see him but um and he remember him looking at me. He's like, "You, you could make a living from this." And I was like, "That's what I'm trying to do." You know, like I drawn at that point, I'd drawn eight comics in my bed, <laughs> like because that's all I could do was like lie there and draw. And I remember doing because I'd have I called them ME days when they were really bad. When I'd just be like, and it was so incredibly frustrating because you know I wanted to do everything and I couldn't do anything. Mm. And I think that you know, when I started to feel better, and I've said this many times before, I think doing something, actually, I I kind of worked myself better, which is probably a really unhealthy way to look at at our relationship with work. And, you know, especially, this is long before the days of, you know, practicing self-care and all these kind of like, you know, terminologies that, that we hear all the time now. It's like, as far as I was concerned, I had to work myself better you know I had to work to prove my worth to my parents to my to the world you know and you know I did all these ridiculous things to try and do that and you know I think like that was the thing and I remember like um you know I remember ringing up the uh disability office and saying that I wanted to cancel my disability benefits and they were like sorry what you you want to cancel it I'm like yeah I'm feeling better I think I should probably and it was like such a lovely conversation with this person it was just like I this is just so wonderful I hope you do do really well and I was just and it felt so good because you know I, I distinctly remember a, a 
the day that I had to quit my job as a graphic designer, I was in complete shock and I was walking through the high street and two very strange things happened. One of them, this guy came up to me and said, are you okay? I said, I'm sorry, I've just had some bad news. He's like, do you want to talk about it? And I was in such a daze and he led me into this bookshop and he led me downstairs and he, was, he said, I think I can show you something to help me, help you. And there was a stand and it was fucking Scientology. You know, it's like Dianetics. And I was like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I remember walking out and I, go, and I had to go to- Catch you after a law. I know, I know. Right. Thank God you said Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went to, uh, I, went, I had to go to the bank and, and cancel my business account. And, they, and the woman was like, why are you canceling this? It's like, oh, I've been diagnosed with ME. And she just turned around and said, yuppie flu. And I just burst out. I burst out into tears. I was like, "You've no fucking idea wow. how shit I feel all of the time." Oh my god! And, and she was obviously really taken aback because she hadn't ever, you know, maybe it was just a, you know, a, a moment of like she'd heard about it from other people. It was a thing that, you know, especially in the eighties, it was like lazy people have yuppie flu and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, I had to go to an ME clinic, and there are people in wheelchairs, and there are people who can't walk to the end of their road. And, you know, my my half-sister actually was diagnosed with ME uh, maybe 10 years after me and she couldn't, she was practicing to play cello and her wrists hurt so much that she couldn't hold her bow. And it's like things like that that people just don't hear about these things because it's mm. not, because it has stigma. And as you said, you know, the idea that you look fine. You don't yeah. have, your arm's not falling off and, you know, whatever, but like, you can have cancer and look fine. It's just a very, and again, it comes back to this idea of how we see work, how we see our relationship with work. What is work? Do we have to be in an office to prove that we are working? You know, this kind of, and, yeah. and this year has proven that you don't actually need to be in office to do work. And actually you might do more work if you're not in an office. So, uh, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> There's a segue. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, yeah. And um, do you know, we'll say the scripts for those comics that you wrote, Alex, and did a lot of those scripts um, translate to lyrics as well? Where were you in relation to music at that stage? So, uh, so around 2006, 2005, I moved to, well, 2004, I moved to Brighton and I met, um, I met uh, Neil, who played guitar in Fall of Ephrafa. Um, and we became firm friends. He was kind of like a friend of a friend and um, friendship group that, you know, I remember we were talking about doing doing a project together, um, and I think I conned him into being in a band with me by saying that we do a death metal band. Um, I don't think that he had any idea what I had in mind. Um, and then I met Mikey through, through the punk scene, um, Mikey D. We became firm friends. We we had I, we have a day that we've we've spoken about many times. This profoundly lovely day when he brought a bunch of records over to my house and we listened to Neurosis and Salvation by Cult of Luna and I played him uh, Remains of the Day and a bunch of stuff and we realised that there were sonic similarities between these two genres of music, which is basically heavy and pretty. Um, and we decided that we would do this band. And you know, years and years before I basically toured with my friend's band selling my my comics at shows um doing merch what was the name of that band um, give them a shout out and <laughs> they were called howard's aliens <laughs> hey! and they were a <laughs> progressive ska <laughs> band uh and the 
the bassist of Howard's Alias is Stevie, who went on to be the guitarist in one of the guitarists in Fall of Ephrafa. Um And I was good friends with all those guys. And, and then, so I remember we were on tour once and Stevie was reading Watership Down and I was like, you know, we're talking about the, the, the beginning of, of some of the chapters, there's little um, quotes from other books. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember think, thinking we should do a band like based around the mythology in this, you know, that the mythology in this book, you know, and then roll forward, you know, six or seven years, we actually, you know, started talking about it and um, he moved to Brighton and then we started Fall of Ephrafa and it was, uh, <clears throat> for me, it was very like, important from just from the idea of working with other people and like you know we i never ever thought that we would get anywhere with it and you know the first record we did was basically i thought that was going to be it we do this record and that would be it you know um but we just got on really well and we had went through a couple of different guitarists and drummers and stuff and then eventually i was really good friends with george and he was in a band called farewell to arms a band called dead by dawn um a bunch of other stuff and he was just a really good D-beat drummer. He was playing. He was playing in Flyblown at the time, who were like just a really good D-beat band. And he came to see us play, and and uh, he said, "You guys are good, but you'd be better if I was your drummer." And uh, and then he moved to Brighton, and then you're we we started you're hired practicing. Straight away. And uh, yeah, <laughs> he is an incredible. He doesn't, sadly doesn't drum anymore. He's he's a he's um he was actually very ill with a with a. Uh, um, uh, disease uh, I don't want to misquote but I've, I've actually known a few people have it and it was really a, affecting his back he was in a lot of pain especially in the when we recorded the last record and he had to fundamentally change his whole life and you know and now he's, he's just had his first child and he's he's doing interpretive dance wow. and all kinds of really awesome stuff and um and uh so that was that was that but um He's um his D beat was fucking great. I remember him being very happy that the drummer from Wolf Brigade thought he was a really good drummer. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that was really cool. Um, but uh, how did you guys oh, have a busy week where the beat stuff is fucking amazing? But a uh, big shout out to Michael Douglas there, Mickey D. Uh, his bass is fucking great sounding. Holy shit! Like what a fucking it is, song. Yeah, just brilliant. And. He's he's one of my best friends, and he actually does vocals in Morrow. And when we play live, he also does all of the because Morrow has this kind of bunch of people doing guest vocals, and Mikey will do all the guest vocal parts that I can't yeah, yeah. do because it's too many fucking lyrics. <laughs> so it's it's been really lovely because every single band I've done since Fall of Ephraim, I have asked Mikey <laughs> to be involved, and he very politely would always say. Uh, thank you very much for asking but no and then morrow came along and and i which i'm quite surprised because it's sonically very similar to full of Ephrafer. and you know after that band ended there was definitely this feeling of like um like the end mm -hmm. of a relationship and it was it was it was profoundly moving and it changed me it made me very very sad and and i think it affected all of us in very different ways and it, it took me years and i'm still not over it definitely not over it now and i you know i you have to be quite like po-faced about the whole like you know when people ask about oh would you ever do the band again and i have to speak for everyone because not everybody else in the band is you know i mean mikey has an amazing podcast uh, which where he talks about you know these um you know his favorite musical experiences some that we've shared and he talks about um he just has this incredible kind of eloquent voice and he's so incredibly intelligent and he's who i turn one of the many people i turn to when i need that kind of like grounding um 
perception of reality mm-hmm. and and he does he should listen is um are we still into this yeah. i think that's and um anyway uh you'll put a link <laughs> um and uh i have a terrible memory um but yeah like i would you know if i ever get asked would you ever do the band again oh no no i speak for the rest of the band you know we'd have to all be involved of course i fucking want to do the mm-hmm. band again like i would love to i would love to play those songs we we didn't get to play them very much. We it was, it was quite much. a short. It was quite a short span of time, right? I mean, it was only a couple of years when you look at it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think definitely. that uh, fans of the of the of your music would be absolutely blown away to see you guys back a roadburn or something like that. I think it would be magical for anybody that grew up in the in the oh, yeah. listening to your music. You know, I hope. I hope. <laughs> no, yeah. no, it won't. It, sadly, it won't ever happen. We definitely wouldn't play roadburn. But... <laughs> Uh, it, we'd, it would have to be a squat in Germany, uh, and and I, I'm not joking. It would literally have to be a squat in Germany. Um, and I I just think that like we were we never wanted to be part of like the we, just, we were just a shitty punk band, you know. We just wanted to be a shit. We wanted to be Madame Germain. We wanted to be um, Remains of the Day or Tragedy. One, I mean, Tragedy played massive shows, but like they were still self-governed DIY band. You know, Todd Burdett, the the, the guitarist from tragedy is like one of my favorite guitarists everything he does i think is incredible and um you know they 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 were like the archetype of that kind of like idea of like just do it mm. yourself you know like don't you don't need to to and i'm sure they've had their offers and whatever they were massive for a while but um but i think for us we just wanted to just wanted to play some shows and you know we met lots of really cool people and bands that went on to do massive things you know we played a you know, Armin Ra, we played a show in a pub with them. And um, now they're like, you know, one of the biggest bands in in, in yeah. genre of metal, um, post whatever. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's something that's, you know, it, it opens up lots of opportunities. And, you know, especially if you have our band with, with a, a massive scope and, and have like this artistic, you know, like Neurosis mm-hmm. or um, Godspeed You Black Emperor or something like that, where you kind of have, you're, you're a gigantic band, but you can still have that level of like control over the things yeah. that you create, and you know. Um, and uh, but I don't ever, I I don't think we were. Well, he, to do that. I mean, he ended things know. on your terms, which is crucial. But what? Um, yeah, we did. Yeah, but I think, yeah. But like, what can you remember much about um, the whole production of those albums? Who you got involved, and was there any particular standout moments? For you as a singer in uh yeah i remember all of it um you know we uh, for, the, all albums were recorded by george george's drummer uh george the drummer's brother sorry say that again so george's brother is called peter miles and he's a he's quite a, a famous record producer now um we recorded all of our albums with him we did everything with him i think um and you know we we recorded the first one in it was a converted barn um i think it was like a grain silo where the vocals were done um and then the standout moments for that were you know sticking a dictaphone in the piano to record one of the the parts to make it sound you know old and broken which was really cool i've still got that dictaphone i've still got that recording um and you know i i struggling with the cello um and second record we recorded at uh pete and george's parents house in in Devon, which was utterly beautiful, it had a had a river running through the garden, and um, we, I think that was probably my best vocal experience I'd ever done vocals before, and 
kind of just smashing it out and not having to worry too much about it and not destroying myself and and then the final record was um the saddest you know it was very much uh in retrospect i wish that we had taken some time out there was definitely a feeling of getting it done um getting fed up with each other and i have I have thought about this many, many times that if we'd just taken a hiatus and just had a bit of a break, and we did have plans for a fourth record that, that never happened called Zorn, um, and you know we, we left it open. I remember the when the final kind of day came when we had to kind of decide what we were going to do, we were always going to put the cello from the beginning of the first record at the end of the last to kind of like signify that uh, cyclical nature of the records, the rise and fall of a civilization. and. And we were just like, yeah, let's put it in. And so we put it in. Um, and it was like, I don't know, I think I, I wish that we'd just taken some time out. But we were, you know, we were younger then and we just didn't really think about whether or not, you know, we would regret that. And maybe we'd want to come back to it in a year or whatever. But, um, but you know. And sure, look what a song then, The Warren of Snares. Yeah, no, this, uh, yeah, with, um, with the drums. It's actually really funny. If you listen, this will probably ruin it for everyone, <laughs> but... It, <laughs> But um, if you listen right to the end of the record, uh, when we say "for we are many," there's a it, we, it's like "for we are many," and then you can just hear <laughs> "many," and it's George's dad. George's dad. George's dad is the last voice to be heard on the full of record. <laughs> Which I, in in hindsight, is adorable because he didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> Just do a gang, do a gang vocal, um, and so his voice is immortalised on that record. Oh, that's amazing! Um, like, I'm on yeah. straight to listen to that. <laughs> yeah, go and listen to it now. I've, like I've said it to the rest of the band, and like I can I can't hear it. I, I'm it's literally there. Like, but to be honest, it's kind of lovely because my mum did spoken word on inlay, and my and Stevie's dad did spoken word on. Oh, Hill. that's cool. Um, so it's 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 cool that you know um, that George's dad had the last <laughs> say. <laughs> um, and I yeah, but then that's the thing is that these records are just like immortalizing these moments in your life and like.
weird moments of remembering things um but yeah i'm sure you both have thousands of moments like that but kind of those those turning points or moments where you did something that you're really you really love or or has an emotional reaction and whatever but yeah so yeah the, the recording was always very good very useful very um productive peter was always really good at getting the best out of us and i did subsequent records with him um in other bands and also his record his um assistant became a record producer on his uh, on his own right james bragg and i did a bunch of records with him as well so uh, but now i rec we record everything with with bolty at stuck on your name records in in Nottingham. oh yeah um literally the literally the best one of the best record producers i've ever had the pleasure of knowing knows exactly what we want he's just an awesome punk who's supported the nottingham punk scene for years and you know he's just a lovely lovely person and which I saw him uh, last weekend, Dave from Mora and I went up to um, record with him, well, to reamp guitars and stuff for the new Mora record. So, and that was just lovely to see him again. It's always nice to go up there and 
get vegan Chinese. It's a great spot. Um, I played a show there myself just before the pandemic in the, in the summer. Ah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd been there again previously about maybe seven or eight years. I remember drinking a bottle of Ouzo in the studio. <laughs> a whole fucking <laughs> bottle. Oh, man. It was a, a special night. Oh, Jesus Christ. But it was a fantastic community up there. Um, it was one of my favorite gigs of all time. It was just, just lobbed into a fucking warm, dank room with, you know, 50 people in it. And it yes. was brilliantly sweaty. And it's the kind of thing you miss. You look back on it and you go, fuck, we did that. And you're kind of going, when's that going to happen again? <laughs> yeah, he was, he was saying that Dawn Raid played, they really wanted to play at Stuck On Your Name and, and Stuck On Your Name. And, you know, he was like, you should be playing a much bigger venue than this. And they were like, no, we want oh, to play Oh, it's the place to go, man. I, you know, yeah. it really yeah. is. It's just it's just special. But that's the thing. It's like DIY spaces. And, yeah, you know, there's no bouncer. Like, it's just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's... I, I I would take that a million times over any anywhere else. Although I'm not the person to ask because I'm a vocalist and not a guitarist. And I'm told that if you're a guitarist, being able to hear yourself makes all the difference. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh... I think it's more the experience of, of the room so you're in really... than, the, than the sound you're making. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's so important before if Rafa in relation to Paratalan and... Massive. Um, I, was late, I was late enough uh, to the parody, if I'm honest. I was on tour in 2012 and we were playing a gig in Utrecht. And we were staying with Johan, who we've had on the show before, um, mm. from Thursday the Horde. And he had the the three releases on vinyl. And I remember how excited our drummer got about this. He was just, he hadn't seen this. He, he was such a huge fan. And, you know, I knew I'd heard him talk about G, but I always just said, I'm not listening to a 10 minute song. You know, I, I, I take that kind of attitude. Like, But I remember seeing the three vinyl records and just thinking, they look fucking great. They just look great, you know? and um, digging through it and then started to listen to it and realize what a fool I had been. But um, at that time, I was in a different band, but the mythology aspect of it, the interest in nature and so on, Paratlone is very much rooted in that. Um, where Paratlone himself was a mythological person who arrived as a second wave of invasions to Ireland, conquered the Four Morians, which were representations of um, um, the Four Morians and so on. Died within two weeks, little and I found her for explaining herself, if you know what I mean. So a lot of the ideas don't have the character Paratlone in mind, but it's a fantastic way of articulating what it is you're trying to say. So from that perspective, yeah. I, yeah. I, really, I really think that um, I, I struggle to find another band that has influenced, influenced us more collectively, especially myself and Alan. Neurosis maybe elements of Minra and Cult de Lune and so on, but in terms of the, the concept side of things, just just having a clear narrative as to what's happening at the, yeah. the watership down thing is just it's just beautifully done and it's it's really easy to understand that you're you know what i mean you don't have to you know it's one thing to have music be elusive but when you find it and it makes sense it's just an amazing thing and that was one of those moments for me it was late to the party but when i found it, it just made sense and it just set me off on this path of trying to articulate my own version of the so it's it's amazing for me to be speaking to yourself because you you know it's very rare that you get to talk to somebody who has influenced you so much and i, I can't it's hard to articulate but um i don't think Paratlone would exist in the form that it does now without your band i really really don't think so and i'll be forever grateful for that you know well I, i'm i'm really glad you enjoyed it and i mean i can't take the credit for it because obviously it was a it was a very much a joint effort with some amazing people who I'm incredibly glad to still be very close mm. with. And, you know, it was, um, you know, I, I, yeah, I think this is the same thing with, with, so for me, it was remains of the day. Like I, 
I've spent a lifetime trying to kind of capture this spirit, this sound of a band that, you know, you know, in many ways, you know, a lot of people haven't heard. And, um, and they were this band from Portland who, you know, incorporated post-punk and DB and, you know, they had this strange ethereal feeling. Their first record is very much influenced by Neurosis and bits of Amoebics, but also like, you know, his hero is gone, but they all lived in the same area as those bands. And I believe that um, they share, well, they do, they share members with Hellshock and, and I actually met the drummer. Uh, he was on tour with Warcry, which is another Portland band. And I remember saying to him, like, I absolutely love Remains of They, and I don't think he has the same, of course he doesn't have the same feelings as I do, because everyone has their own experience of the thing they've been in. It's like, it's like Cult of Luna saying that they don't, I've heard them say that they don't like sal Salvation as much, um, and they don't play it because they, you know, it was this formative record mm. that, you know, they, they toured a lot and they played a lot and they, you know, they recorded it in a certain way and they don't have, and it's always very hard when you, encounter a band that doesn't like their yeah. own music or has had their own emotional response to the music and I you know I was definitely that person after Fall of Ephrathur and it was because I was heartbroken I was so heartbroken when that that band I did I started bands which you could you would call rebound bands they were bands to try and capture mm. that feeling and you can't do that and I did that and I did that over and over again and I tried so hard and for me it was like you know it was that realization that it wasn't necessarily the music it was the the people and mm. you know and I, I you know I in the preceding years after the band ended I tried to start the band again um I had a concept you know and everything and I it didn't work because because of certain certain members didn't want to do it and I am very glad that the, we didn't because I took those ideas and I decided well I'm going to do my own mythology I'm going to start my own I'm going to start I love writing lyrics I hate touring I'm going to do a book so I wrote a, so over a couple of years I started writing and I wrote a book and and I've fallen in love with that kind of aspect of it and then over those years of like healing from my feelings towards Fall of Effort from falling in love with that again and starting you, you know Dave who I do, who I started Moro with, like Dave is incredible. He's one of my best friends. He's an incredible musician. You know, he basically, you know, I was trying to start a band to try and rekindle that sonic sound, that that sound, that feeling of Remains of the Day and Tragedy and Fall of mm -hmm. Ephraim and Neurosis and all this stuff. And, and, you know, I said to Dave, like, you know, I'm trying to do this thing. Would you be interested in having a go at writing some music? And and um, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. And we'd been doing Carnist, um, which was like a kind of scrappy hardcore band that turned into a D-beat band. And that was like a wonderful friendship for guys, you know, making music together and listening to propaganda for hours <laughs> and hours and hours. And and um, and uh, and then Dave went away and he came back a couple of weeks later and he sent me a track and it was acoustic guitar. I was like, oh, cool. He's written some acoustic guitar stuff. He'd written the whole song and he programmed the drums and it was this epic, beautiful song. And it was the first song from the first Morrow record. And it was just like, it gave me goosebumps and it made me realize that I have those experiences and that they don't diminish my previous experiences. Mm. They just add to, but what was wonderful is that, you know, we did we did the first record, Covenant of Teeth, and, and it was a very personal experience because it was just mostly me and Dave. Dave did all of the instrumentation. My friend, Nicole, who played in Anopheli with me, did um cello she's in san diego so that was like remotely done and then so we did this record it was very much the dave and alex show 
and then we were like next record we're going to get our friends in and then I invited friends from all over the world and then Mikey I said to Mikey and Mikey loved Morrow and I was like he's like I'd love to be involved and I was actually shocked <laughs> I was like I you, you want to be involved and I was like for me that was like and I, I he came up and I remember Dave was you know Dave was there and like you know he said I remember him saying like it was you were so happy when Mikey was there to like do his vocals and I was like yeah because it's like coming home in many ways but not coming home to something that happened before but creating something new and bringing people in so the next record so we you know we did that record and now we're doing another one and it is a lockdown record so it's Dave is you know we Dave wrote all of the guitars and bass and drums and he recorded it all into his computer and the, through the magic of technology he then we took it to Balti and Balti reamped the guitars but he also reamped the bass and Alistair plays bass in in Morrow and you know and it was something Dave Dave was so worried about saying like you know we've got the bass like you know Alistair's gonna have to learn all the parts and come up here and play blah 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 why don't we just do another record where we get everybody back yeah. involved again but we'll just do this is going to be the Morrow lockdown record and he, I remember you know he was he was so worried about telling Alistair and and Alistair was totally cool about it and, and I remember they were saying this is what it's like to be in a band for the yeah. you know, it's just like you know he totally understands like why would you re-record it again you know like and it was lovely and and uh, you know I Alistair's lovely he's an incredible bassist and and it, his his interpretation will will be missed but Dave's already you know we we were reamping the guitars and we we slept in the studio mm -hmm. where you played your show with Parthalon so we slept on the floor in that room and um uh, and uh, we were talking about what we were going to do with the next record and you know that's the, the beauty of this whole thing is like you know getting a bunch of people together and friends and you know um, you know uh, that's what punk is and that's what I love about this and I don't you know I've, I I have really bad mental health and I struggle with with all aspects of um, of of touring and being in bands and and being the front person in a band I don't like it but I'd love the experience of sharing those moments with those like moments of I'm sure you've had them yourselves like uh, making music that that Mikey call is, calls it the holy shit moment where like <laughs> yeah. one of your bandmates writes a riff or something and you're like holy shit that's so good like and it's that one I feel it now like yeah. that wonderful sense like you're chasing that, that um, buzz that that, know, that fucking yeah. micro yes, moment yeah, within the moment and you're like fuck yeah that feels good you know it it's, is it, yeah you yeah. never even you go live, you're you, always looking for it it's the hunt exactly and i think that's the thing i i get why people like playing live because you get filled with endorphins and and uh and um uh, dopamine and all these wonderful <laughs> feelings and and you can you are on cloud nine and it's it's you know even the most introverted people can ha i remember um matt who would sing in um howard's alias stevie's old band like he would almost throw up before every show because he was so nervous and then he'd do this incredible performances where he had a lot of like body language and moving his arms around and he was an amazing performer and he still is now he still does music and um and uh you know but i remember him being so nervous before shows and i and i i know that feeling i've thrown up before shows and you know i think because so much is asked of you but at the same time you have that elation mm. when you when it all fits together and then it's like boom you know you play and I think that's why you know when I meet friends who are really really shy and I'm like and they're like I I could never do this and like you if I can do it you can and you should yeah. definitely do it and the new Morrow album is titled The Quiet Art um can it you is, give yes. us yeah, give us insight into it 
<laughs> um, it's uh, it's named after the film The Quiet Earth, but um, it's uh, it's a continuation of the story that I started in in Morrow and another band that we share members with called Archivist, which is like a ethereal metal band that I did with uh, Gefried, who plays guitar in Morrow, um, and he plays guitar in Archivist, based in Vienna, and I was involved in that band with. So I shared my vocals with Anna. Um, who is an incredible one of also one of my best friends like one incredible vocalist I, she used to be in a band called Amber and I remember hearing her vocals I just like Jesus Christ this person's got the best fucking voice I've ever heard and we became friends and I was like you know and she she left that band and and you know didn't have a band and I was like I've got I just want her to be in a band because she's so incredibly talented and then so we 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 um we did. We started Archivist together, and I was traveling to Vienna, which is very counterintuitive to to my um, not wanting to tour or play in bands or whatever. <laughs> uh, so I was traveling over there a lot, and we did three albums mm. with that band. And the story in Archivist, this kind of science fiction story. So this is incredibly pretentious and very very nerdy. But so the record, the last Archivist record. This this Morrow record is a reflection of that record, but from the perspective of the characters in Morrow. So it's the same events, but from a future primitivist society living in the ruins of Earth in the year 4500. Um, and they have this community, they're called the Nor. They live in North America and what was New, upstate New York, which is now a gigantic forest covering North America. And then above this is an ice shelf it's a, a pan-continental glacier um, and peoples have walked across this glacier from Scandinavia and uh, Mongolia and, and then all the peoples that are left in, in America and they've created this culture where you know they're so intermingled their cultures mixes of you know Spanish um, uh, Native American you know um, just this kind of hot kind of cauldron of, of cultural experiences and they have this symbiotic relationship with nature and then the events of archivist which is this very science fiction very futuristic they kind of come together and it's like telling that story but from a very like uh um totemic like um basic understanding of nature as as fundamentals as like you know light and dark and nature and and water and fire and you know how those people would un try and understand technology that's so far advanced, you know, it's, it's indistinguishable f from magic, as we know that saying. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's what it's about. Because <laughs> I was going to it's ask about of... um, Archivist, but um, I'm delighted here that the story is continuing because I'm a big fan of that work. I was going to ask, is, so that's pretty much Archivist done now, and Morrow is the continuation of the story. Or is there, or is there a Not chance really, of, basically... of a revisit to that? Well, I mean, I, well, I, mean I, I, like, Archivist is still a band. Um, I just, um, I, I, I had some personal stuff that I had, was going through before um, lockdown. Just, just realizing that I was burnt out. I'd done, was doing too much, and I didn't. It, it was suffering, and I, we always, you know, we, with all the bands I've been involved in, it's like you put your friendships and and yourself before bands. Bands don't mm -hmm. matter. It's like the the only reason I'm in bands is a constructive friendship. It's a way of like spending, it's a reason to spend time with people that you love who are so far away from you. And it's like, I have this band Anopheli in America, which is, you know, Brian who plays guitar. He now lives in Los, uh, Los Angeles and um, Josh, he lives in Texas. And 
you know, we're, we're going to do another record. And we did two albums together and, and I went over to America and we did these two albums and, and you know, we, we met at a Fall of Effort for show in North Carolina and we became very, very close friends. And, you know, we're, only, we're doing the record because we love music, but at the same time, it's just to spend time with the, each other. And, you know, and it's the same with Archivist. Like, I would love to continue doing it, but I just don't have, I don't have it in me but i want them they're going to continue doing music whether or not they'll call it archivist i don't know um and uh but anna who does who shared vocals with me in that band she'll be doing vocals on i spoke to her today actually she's going to do vocals on the last morrow record because the lyrics are the same lyrics mm. and so the bits that are lyrics that were used in archivist will be sung by her which That's i thought cool. would be lovely to have this like dualism of two different records with the same lyrics slightly different but um so yeah, maybe I don't know. I mean, I I I did. I mean, I think like actually removing yourself from a from a situation where you have the stresses mm -hmm. and of of being a band and then just being friends again, you start to kind of forget the frustrations of like those experiences. You know, the kind of like time frames, yeah. the responsibilities, and it goes back to just being friends. And uh, that's kind of reminded us just how important we are in each other's lives. And and I think that's really cool. And I but it automatically makes me want to do something with those people again. So it's just like, oh, we should do another record together. Like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, who knows? I don't know. I'd like, to, I'd like to do more, but you know, I think maybe Moro is a good way of kind of bringing those people together mm. and, and see where it takes you. You know, kind of, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I'm it's the, the, the sheer quality of the, the records. Like, I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing really is. Um, it's an incredible body of work. It really is very yeah. hard to, um, to. It holds water across the board. It's really, really rare, I think. Mm. You know, the, to touch the, so many different things. I think it, so and the well. fact that you're collaborating seamlessly with other musicians, and you know, it's something that I'd love to see more. That would happen more in the Irish scene. Um, we don't have enough collaborations at all. And I mean, we're a close, we're a close-minded group. We need to broaden the horizons a little bit. You know. Yeah, but some of mate, like the the dag, like the Dagda. Um, the Dagda were one of those bands that like I discovered early on in, in, in my pursuit of bands that have this incredible energy and uh, drive but also like there I, mean, I was talking to Mikey about this the other day like he's going to do a uh, he's doing a zine and he's going to talk about those records that that had that effect and we were talking about the Dagda the other day and like how you know they had this they had in their they referenced mythology obviously the dagger itself and like um and they played with like that whole concept of like uh kind of lefty paganism uh like mythology um you know uh and they made the sonic kind of equivalent of those feelings and that that very like earthy kind of um tangible feeling and and it's something that then those you know i remember getting i had the dagderons because i didn't have a record player i had a i had the first the the, the yellow cover i can't remember what it's called but the uh, on cd and i listened to it so much and yeah i remember when i moved to brighton one of the first bands i saw when i moved to brighton was esper oh, yeah. who were now like esper yeah. like um yeah yeah and they're all like famous folk musicians uh, Lancome. Now, and like uh, Lancome. Yeah. um yeah yeah they're fantastic they're they're Jesus, they blew yeah. up there last year with uh, Taylor Swift took offense or some uh, Swift fan or <laughs> took offense to something they said or, you know, Taylor Swift's uh, new album cover was remarkable. 
be similar to <laughs> it just took oh, off oh, really yeah. <laughs> it was hilarious that's amazing <laughs> but they like i saw them play in the little pub and, and they were playing emo cross the music mm. that you know and they they did uh split with who did they just split with it's, uh, i can't remember this is years ago uh division yes. ruin um and yeah like uh, i so uh burn church which was more modern i think that's members of is that members of the Dagda? Anyway, I can't remember. Anyway, there is like a, there's definitely a collection of like cross bands in Ireland that share members, but it might also be that there just aren't that many cross who like that <laughs> kind of music, like, which is very much the same in England. They've, they've, all, they've all grown up, I think. I think they moved out a lot of them. <laughs> they all cut off their dreadlocks. Exactly. got a mortgage in there. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, came down from the trees and got a mortgage. Yes, or there. Yes, yes, exactly. They got an umbrella without holes in. Um, so, Alex, talk to me about worst witch. <laughs> uh, so, worst witch was another concept band. Well, um, I really wanted to start a band. Like, I wanted to do a band that had nothing to do with, um, like, like emotional crust. And I moved to Bristol. I made some wonderful friends, including Alistair, mm. who now plays bass in Morrow um and we did one record and it was just like one of those bands where like we just wanted to um do a scrappy band that played songs that weren't necessarily about anything in particular like kind of social issues and stuff which i hadn't really done um and i wanted to do a seven inch but we wrote too many songs um but yeah it was a very short-lived band but um liam who played guitar and bass in that band uh we we've talked about doing lots of different bands he was going to so i've started <laughs> for somebody who doesn't want to do any bands i've started we started another band called reeve which is actually members of of morrow and i really wanted liam to play guitar in morrow because he's a really beautiful guitarist and but we've actually talked about doing um a band based on my books and doing like a kind of this the, in my books it's like poet poems mm. in the beginning of some of the chapters and i wanted to do like use them as lyrics and do like a folk band like not a heavy band so we might do that, but yeah, Worst Witch was a very short-lived thing, but it was really fun. It was like, you know, we moved to, I moved to Bristol, we did the band, and then I moved to London, and, you know, they moved on and did a bunch of different projects together, but then the fucking lockdown happened, and yeah. everyone stopped doing bands, so, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So yeah, that was Worst yeah. Witch. <laughs> uh, does, is there any other bands that we haven't covered? I think there's, there's one more. Uh, four? I'm sure, there are two. Too many, too many bands. I've done, I've done too many bands, and I'm sure everyone is very tired and sick of them. No, there is one, um, there is one band I uh, want to ask about. Um, well, yeah. it's not me. It's actually I just got a message from the from Alan the drummer to ask you um, about the Fort Four album Zola. Zorn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the the fourth Fall of Effort record. Oh. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I presume F O E yeah. is fall of effort. Yeah, I just, I just assumed. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. I just assumed it was four. I was like, who is he fucking talking about? No, no, no. Yeah. Right. And it's not Zola. It's Zola. So I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> I think I've been. Zorn, I think I've yes. been set up, Richie. Yeah. <laughs> I think Adam. <laughs> Adam is trolling um, it's, me. It's uh, so Zorn. <laughs> Zorn is a uh, it, it, in the Lapine language, which is the language of the rabbits. It means destruction, okay. and um. And it was the idea of doing a record that kind of set <clears throat> would, it would be quite um, uh, what's the word? Um, no, it's gone. Uh, it would be a, 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 a allegorical of today's world where we learn nothing from past events, and um, 
so it would be the idea that civilization kind of reconstructs itself with all these ideals of of democracy mm -hmm. and sharing and then slides back into fascism and without even realizing it and so it would have been like the the cycle of learning from our you know the freedom freeing ourselves from fascist ideology and then f slowly falling back into that same problem again and the cycle continuing um so that would have been the fourth record but in hindsight i'm not sure it needs to exist because i guess in a mm. way it's like part of the story anyway but um and it's also nice to end on a positive note yeah <laughs> so uh, the record does end with the uh the death of the death of the fascist de despot general woundwort and uh the freedom of of its peoples and all that kind of stuff there's so, another band yeah. as well Lightbearer. Yeah. that's a long while back uh Lightbearer was um a band i did after mm. fall of Ephrathah. um and uh you know we, we we did our best to try and kind of create we i think we bit off too much bit bit off more than we could chew um lots of different age groups it never really kind of came together in, in the in that kind of cohesive way but we we did some we had some awesome experiences and shared some shows with some amazing bands and met some lovely people who I've you know since created music with and also it was a band I got to do with Lee who did all the um, atmospherics and stuff and he, he was he introduced me to metal like when I was 18 19 neurosis today's the day Nile yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, he was my he was my metal friend and we're still very much friends and you know he's a wonderful person and we've done lots of stuff together and uh, so I got to do that with him and uh, Geffried was um, played bass and we've obviously done lots of bands since then but yeah um, yeah it was a it was definitely I think it came at a very turbulent time in my life and and, and lots of other members of the band but yeah it was we, we gave it a good go but I think it was a very long experience and it was basically two bands because we started as a group and then that group kind of dwindled down to a few and then we got new members and um, yeah mm. it was a thing yeah. like it was a band <laughs> LLF. LLF. It's uh yeah, that was like a that was just a little project with my friend uh <laughs> Michaela who's in an incredible black metal band called Gottis Morder. I'm not a huge fan of black metal, but when I saw them play, they were just incredible. Like three guys from Italy uh just like blew me away. We became really good friends with them and then Michaela is he does a lot of noise stuff. So that was like a noise band that we did together. We only did a tape release, but it wasn't not it wasn't a proper band. It was just like a, a, a friendship project. Um, yeah. So where do you get um, inspirations from now at this stage, Alex? I mean, you're still obviously in touch with nature. Anything else? Science fiction? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think influences come from everywhere. It's like I I think I did I did I wrote an interview recently when I was talking about like where like the way that inspiration comes. I think. Um, I often find that when I'm like, like I watch a film uh, or read a book and I, and it's the feelings, these certain feelings you get, like there are moments of inspiration that are more like notions as opposed to fully formed things. And you're like, I think sometimes it comes from just that, like that spark of like, oh my God, I feel like I really want to do this thing. And sometimes it's like meeting someone who understands you know uh what you're trying to do and and that and then their skills which far outweigh mine if it's musical like it's like turning my awful you know monotone singing ideas into beautiful riffs that become so much more than just that and then 
um yeah i think like i i read a lot um yeah i'm i'm very much into i'm writing a book at the moment which was kind of like a um it's like a reaction to the rise of like the alt right and 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 kind of neo fascism and having dealt with someone in close proximity to me who was who was into that stuff and not really knowing how to react to it in a kind of uh without yeah. being angry um without like just shouting and saying you're wrong and this is ridiculous like which i did um but i just thought like i need to like somehow and also that there, there, there is a cultural really interesting cultural shift and maybe you guys probably know this like a lot of like anti-fascist kind of um uh occult pagan mythological uh recontextualizing stuff that's been stolen by nazis uh and you know um you know taking back from nationalists um you know uh sean fitzgerald is an amazing artist um you know he's one of these artists who's like taking classic you know um British ideology, Irish and Scottish and Welsh ideologies, and uh, that have been usurped by nationalists, and then recontextualizing them within their original place, where they're much more about community and sharing ideas, and and uh, you know, um, and I wanted to contribute to that. So I've kind of been working on this like kind of occult concept of like uh, I'm writing a grimoire, which I've created like a bestiary of like demons and deities and this idea of this um, 16th century prophet who has visions of the rise of fascism in the 1930s, so creates or believes he has found a pantheon of deities. And in a way it was like a reaction to H.P. Lovecraft, because obviously he was, you know, very, very much a, a racist for a lot of his life. Although towards the end of his life, he seems to have kind of changed his views on things i know there's some letters that he wrote about that but he was a very much and but he created this entire genre of cosmic horror uh that is beloved by everyone but it 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 has shadows of his xenophobia and and um racism and i think like i think there's a especially with like lovecraft lovecraft country and like ways of like recontextualizing things and saying like okay so this exists how can we take that away from people who are trying to use it for evil reasons and take it back to when it wasn't that thing and and uh, or using it as a way of telling new stories um, like with Lovecraft Country which was a way of like talking about civil rights in America uh, through the lens of H.P. Lovecraft which if, if you haven't seen it it's a fa fascinating kind of take it's based on a book um, and I wanted to do something similar to that, where I create like a pantheon of like entities, deities, whatever that are fighting for good, <laughs> uh, fighting for the idea of like where mythology comes from, you know, all of these things which, which came out of culture in a way of like understanding the world around us and understanding nature and humans are very good at putting things in boxes and saying this is that and this is this and you know the you know where where did where did all this come from? Was it just the survival you know the the rustle in the grass could be a lion or it could just be the wind but i'm going to run away so regardless i'm going to survive and then that becomes dancing to start rains and then it becomes you know shedding blood for gods and then it becomes organized yeah. religion and then it becomes you know it's like it's a it's interesting how 
you know, all cultures have these, you know, um, beliefs and uh, I wanted to do something similar to that. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. And that's, they're very much influenced by all these zines that are coming out at the moment, like um, uh, Rituals and Declarations, Weird Zine, um, uh, Wolverstein, um, just really awesome anti-fascist people who love mythology and paganism and taking it away from yeah. the fash. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> uh, he has to come over to Ireland, Howard, and get oh, steeped in. Christ. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a weekend there, Alex, of um, just just places and things I could show you that would you just, I think you would get a lot of uh, appreciation out of and inspiration from. Sounds uh, wonderful. I'll be there. Just some of the local, <laughs> even some of the local legends around here in Passage West where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just some fantastic stuff. It's, it's, it's a deep well of, of interesting things. And you can see how it's shaped the town over hundreds and hundreds of years and been occupied right. by British forces for so long and been fighting, yeah. you know, I mean, fascism wasn't really a big thing here, I don't think, but you had the Fine Gael Blue Shirt Party at one point, but it was more a sort of a, it wasn't really diving into Nazism, it was more like anti-British at the time. That's not, that's yeah. not to excuse yeah. it, is, it is what it is, but, uh, you know, we have a rich history here of mythology and having it removed from the pantheon, from the thought process of the individual, and moving towards a Protestant sort of ideological um, bow down to God, yeah. go to Mass every Sunday and, you know, go to the right Mass, not the other Mass, the right Mass. <laughs> and all this kind of crap. <laughs> but you can see underneath it all, it became like underground music to a certain extent. There's this simmering mythological thing bubbling underneath everything else. And it's fantastic. There's, there's evidence of it everywhere. So if it is if, if it is something that happens, if you remember Aaron Erdem, please get in touch. I'd be delighted to show you a few oh, things. Oh no, I do. You know, I think you'll get great inspiration my from it. My partner and I, hmm. my partner and I will be on your doorstep do it. next weekend. <laughs> do, do it any fucking time. <laughs> Spare room is ready to go. <laughs> and lastly, let's not forget that you have done and designed T-shirts um, and patches promoting animal <laughs> rights, veganism, and. You know, can you just give us a brief overview on that? Um, so I wanted to, like, I, you know, I, I wanted to contribute to, like, the animal rights movement, but um, I felt that uh, I also wanted some really angry animal rights T-shirts. So I thought, well, I'll make some really angry animal rights T-shirts and I'll sell them and then I'll give some money to charity and then kind of kept on doing it and then kept on coming up with silly ideas and, and friends also came up with amazing ideas, like the one I did recently, which was totally Dave from Morrow's idea it was to do a municipal waste homage nu- nutritional <laughs> yeast that's entirely him entirely him and uh just um I yeah it was just a relief it was a cool way to like raise money for hunt stabs and stuff and um my good friend Mikey Vino Sangre who prints for lots of like bands in the UK um and he's awesome dude who's helped me keep it going and he's um he's actually playing bass in reeve which is really cool we've talked about doing a band together for years but he prints them all and then also my chris my friend chris murphy printed them for years who i've known since i was in college um and uh yeah it's just like another thing to like you know kind of try and contribute something by but uh and it's fun it's really it's it's you know it's a pain in the ass like everything like since brexit um you know it's all everything's becoming yeah. far harder and and uh with with customs and nature's tariff codes and all this bullshit and having to send things and everything getting returned to me if you do one thing wrong in a fucking customs form but i'm sure you guys have again yeah, all that absolutely. shit as well because you know yeah yes um 
but it's uh that is a one huge cutting off your nose despite your face but um uh yeah I, I guess we're hopefully again this comes back to the idea of like right at the beginning the you know the idea of hope for the future is that you know you know as a, as punks we were always told that borders get rid of borders you know but in our lifetime we've seen so many like borders have become so you know uh, uh, the cultural zeitgeist of of you know just put you know especially with america america under trump with you know this very isolationist attitude and then you know but i i'm i hope that the next generation very quickly realizes that that was a big mistake and that sharing of ideas and culture and stuff like it it there's no denying that we are all you know none of us own this land and and we 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 shouldn't separate ourselves mm. in such a profound way and and it's it just seems like it's going to be something that that will overshadow so much of the future unless we 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 change it but then you know there are far bigger things i mean my friend my friend chelsea said to me recently like you think this is bad yeah <laughs> wait for the water wars wait for the you know <laughs> you know equatorial countries uninhabitable the massive migrations of people they're like you know and then we were already seeing like the beginnings of 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 that you know and and the the insidiousness of capitalism scary time uh, it feels uh, uh, for myself personally that i'll be tagging out of this 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 whole deal just in time <laughs> you know well yeah, well, yeah. i mean we're, we're the last mm. generation we're, we're, we? we're uh, lucky the, in the many many ways that uh we have you know such a finite time left we've got 30 40 years if we're lucky and i think anybody that's coming after that is one of a real problem on their hands across the board that they that you know it's not that they haven't heard of these problems that are coming but it seems clear that hearing about problems and actually encountering a problem are two different things well this is that's the that's the thing and i my friend james said this recently it's like the 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 problem with so many of these things including coronavirus is that until it happens mm. to you it's happening to someone else and i think that that we haven't lived we've lived through this era of peace since the second world war to to many extents especially in the west like we see these things and we can have the time to kind of create false narratives and you know vaccine hesitancy we can ignore the fact that you know generations were lost to polio uh there wasn't vaccine hesitancy my my mum remembers well, my grandmother lost her first child to polio and uh my mum remembers mm. iron lungs and she remembers like the kids in hospital who died and it's like that happened and you know i i think because we have this, it's an ex existential thing it's this thing outside of us that's so um, nebulous and amorphous and then when it actually starts to happen there's the, my friend james who's you know very much you know radical left and an anarchist and and but he believes in the good of human nature and when really bad things happen to everyone there's that that last bastion of hope which is that people will work together and people do help each other regardless of the color of their skin regardless of their gender community their community sexuality yeah exactly and i you know we will see the beginnings of awful i mean we already are we're seeing mm. these awful events as a result of climate change and you know it's just not happening to everyone at the same time which is i guess this how everything's happened in history is that it's, you know it's like the classic you know they came for the you know and then it happened to me you know like it's like it's uh 
Yeah. <laughs> human human life is too short, and we don't experience enough to have be able to reflect within yeah, our own life. And I mean, you have um, a thing as well that if you buy um, digital reads, the fall of Efrafa, you the donations will go to Trees for Life in the Scottish Highlands. Yeah, yeah, we decided. Yeah, I had to convince the rest of the band if it uh, to took me a year and a half to convince them to let me put that demo out <laughs> and uh and then we we agreed that we would we would donate the money to charity which is which is really cool and we've donated a lot mm. of money which is really cool um and i got to put that tape out which was really nice because uh i was always super excited about like i that's a, the, the, another thing with like punk is like those those little bits of history those tiny fragments even if it sounds like shit it's still like this you know the the kind of um the cocoon that will house the butterfly, you know, like yeah. even if it's awful recording, you want to hear it. If your favorite band had a shitty demo that you no one ever heard, you'd want to fucking hear that. You would be on Discogs <laughs> and you would have it in your want list. <laughs> and uh, so that was what I wanted to do, and we did it, so it was cool. Um, yeah, they won't let me release the inlay. Demos, I ask them again, you know, just keep asking. It took, it took a year and a half the last time. Uh, they, they, they wrote some very eloquent emails about why they don't want me to put it out so i will let them in this one but um yeah but i love them all, so it's run towards the shaking grass run towards the shaking grass alex <laughs> <laughs> alex cf thank you so much for coming on the show continue to inspire and create cheers thank you very much and thank you for your time no. sorry for rambling fantastic um, it was and, great uh, having yeah. you on the show man thank right, you take care uh, hit subscribe Cheers. if you like Metal Cell Podcast. Howard, thanks a minute for coming on as calls. Thanks for having me.